You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Přes měsíc neukázal, no tak. No, že jsem se přes měsíc neukázal, kde ten prstinek je teďka. Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello again. Also with us is Mr. Kevin Heffernan. Howdy from Texas, folks. It's mighty hot down here. This week we're discussing Milos Forman's Loves of a Blonde from 1965. It's the story of Andula, played by Hanna Brechkova, one of hundreds, if not thousands, of young women who work in the factories of a town where women outnumber men 16 to 1. The shoe factory foreman where Andula works comes up with the brilliant idea to import some army reservists in order to bring the girls happiness. Only the men aren't quite the catch that they could be. Andula opts to pursue the piano player at that big match making dance rather than older, often married army reservists. So Kevin, when was the first time you saw Loves of a Blonde? I first saw this at the art cinema right down the street from the dorm where I lived in college, maybe about 1979-1980. And I really didn't have the proper background to appreciate what it was. I was just a huge fan of Foreman's Hollywood films. Uh, And then I became addicted to it in the video age. Uh, Do you guys remember 
Foothills video. They would put out these incredibly crappy, almost unwatchable gray market, you know, art cinema things. And I just watched it a lot over the course of the late 80s to the early 90s. It's really, really one of my favorite Czech films. How about you, Sam? The first time I saw it was probably about 15 or so years ago when I tried to sort of make a list of what I thought were important films that I hadn't seen and had no idea that this was the same director who, you know, made things like Amadeus and was sort of like Kevin said, I felt like I had no context and kind of thought, what is this? This is so unexpected and funny and kind of nuanced. And at the time, it really struck me because I wasn't really used to seeing films that treated female protagonists in such a way where there wasn't expected to be some sort of, you know, romantic resolution or, and I mean, I also came out of my teens watching almost exclusively horror movies and not really a lot of art house films. So I was just blown away by how nuanced it is. I think I saw this one first in a college class that uh, professor Herb Eagle was teaching, not knowing that Herb Eagle is like some sort of big deal in the Eastern European cinema studies thing. Also in literature, he's a, he's a huge dude. Yeah, yeah. And I was very lucky to study under him. And he showed this wide variety of Eastern European cinema. So I saw this, I saw Fireman's Ball. Then we went into things like he really likes Dushan Makaveev. So I saw a bunch of those films. This kind of falls right in with something like uh, Switchboard Operator from Dushan Makaveev as far as having a female protagonist in here, though luckily she's not murdered. So that's kind of a good thing. I saw a lot of uh, connections between uh, Machiavelli's Man is Not a Bird. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. Oh, yeah, because that really centers on a factory as well, doesn't it? Right, and a, a, a party that goes horribly wrong. There's always something that goes horribly wrong in these Czech New Wave films in a way that usually doesn't lead to some kind of massacre, but leads to these wonderfully awkward social situations that I think also happen in Polish films from the same period where if you're watching them for the first time, they're so disorienting. Like you don't know what to make of this. Like, why is everyone so awkward? But I think this is a good introduction to that kind of <laughs> those uncomfortable dynamics. It's almost like our actors are the kids at a maybe at a party or in some sort of thing. And they're just afraid of what the parents are going to do when they come home. One of the things I really love about this is how young they feel, even though they seem to be, you know, at work and they're not living with their parents. And that sort of struck me the first time I saw it was, you know, where are their parents? Though we do get to see one character's parents in a pretty good scene. <laughs> in the best scene. The thing that really struck me about uh, this sort of sense of awkwardness is, uh, I've been doing a deep dive into Ozu and and in Ozu's films, there are always this uh, these two or three beats before a character enters the scene. We will have this this sparse, unpopulated domestic space and 
there'll be a couple of beats and a character will come into it and the characters will leave the scene and will stay on that for a couple of beats. And in this film, like a lot of Czech films, a character will walk into a space, look around bewildered for a couple of seconds and say, what the hell am I doing in here? You know, uh, uh, the scene at the, at the end of the film, uh, when the when the, the the teenage pianist comes home, he sort of sneaks in drunk. That's a wonderful example of that. But it really is this sort of cinema of social awkwardness uh, that we talked about, of course, before with case for rookie hangman. But the the Czechs really seem to love this this sense of of uh, alienation and anomi. I like that we're giving Andula the power of the narrative right off the bat when it comes to this film, that it's her that we see. She's the second character that we see. We get this great, how would you describe that song? It's like kind of rockabilly, kind of not. It's just those lyrics about being a hooligan and this girl looks so dowdy with that big hair and everything. I mean, I know it's a product of 1965, but it just feels like she's even out of place in 1965 for me. Yeah, that's something that I think is throughout the film is everything seems and feels very out of place. Like the song, that song that you mentioned, and the songs that play during the two dance scenes, they kind of remind me of a song that someone's parents would pick to identify their rebellious teen generation. Like, do you kind of know what I mean? Where it, it, it feels sort of imposed and I'm sure Foreman did that on purpose. Yeah. The music plays such a major part of this. There are scenes later on. We talked about the scene with the parents. There's music running throughout almost that entire sequence. It's like, where's this music coming from? Is this diegetic, non-diegetic? And why is it this kind of like, bebop type music when i would think they'd be listening to like montavani or something but yeah everything feels very out of place and out of time and i know eastern europe was probably a few years behind like beatlemania and those kind of things and also i'm sure that was viewed as being a very decadent western thing so yeah it feels like the parents are the ones in control of the car radio and going no no listen to this cool song well, they're staring into the, the TV to avoid talking to each other, which is that extraordinary scene. And of course, neither of them are professional actors. They were, they were cast from, you know, uh, Foreman's own sort of, you know, walks through Prague. And, uh, so they're, that the TV is droning on anytime there's any moment of awkwardness. They stare off into the TV, hoping to sort of evaporate from the social situation they find themselves in. But remember, the reason that we called the bloodless 1989 fall of the Eastern Black moment in Czechoslovakia, the Velvet Revolution, was that Václav Havel and a lot of underground avant-garde playwrights and novelists and, and story writers uh, were in possession of bootleg copies surreptitiously circulated copies of of you know really advanced western popular music uh the velvet revolution was in fact named after the velvet underground who was Václav havel's sort of favorite band when he was uh, a radical teenage playwright and i think that that sense of of the potential, the the emancipatory potential of music and dance and a sort of communal celebration of 
Eros is something that that Foreman is constantly making fun of in this film in terms of of the young people are already sort of hitting their head on the ceiling of what the adult world is permitting them to experience. See, I thought it was named after Mel Torme, the Velvet Fog. That would be great. And if that were true, I would be even more in support of uh, Havel's uh, wonderful appearance at the Clinton White House. And why didn't they bring Mel Torme, comb over and all, in to serenade them instead of Lou Reed? A great lost opportunity, I think. So sort of to your the point that you just made about how Foreman seems to be kind of making fun of these conventions about people coming together and potential marriages and following this kind of rigid social structure. I know this is really out in left field, but watching this movie, especially rewatching it recently, the thing that it reminded me of was almost sort of an inversion of revolutionary or maybe pre-revolutionary revolutionary era French drama like like Beaumarchais and things like that, where it really is focused on these kind of awkward social interactions and these sort of rules and rituals that are super important to the characters, but that no one can quite figure out if they're doing right or not, which results in a lot of comedy. And this scene in particular, where they bring all the soldiers in because they think that it's the, the right thing to do for the young people, like they have their best interest at heart where these kind of mating rituals are concerned is just so effortlessly hilarious. Right, like uh, Beaumarchais' Game of Love and Chance, which was the source text for Rules of the Game, this idea that people are placed in this in this ostensibly festive atmosphere, and it only serves to exacerbate their sense of awkwardness and alienation. I can really see that. Okay, good. So I wasn't just, I, I almost didn't want to bring it up because it seemed so far-fetched, but that's just what it reminded me of, just in Foreman's sort of subdued, awkward, check new wave way. No, I totally agree. This really reminds me of something like a comedy of manners, even like um, uh, Bergman's Smiles of a Summer Night. You know, the, it feels like we have these rigid social conventions, and this is all just playing off of those. And just the the awkwardness, I mean, especially in this scene where we have the three soldiers and, oh my God, when they send the bottle to the wrong table, that is one of my favorite moments. Painful. Painful. Oh, Yeah. Something that I always pay a lot of attention to in films, just because it's a particular interest of mine, is the way that certain directors use objects. And I think Foreman doesn't get as much credit for it as maybe he should, especially in these early films. But the whole thing revolves around such kind of clever use. Like we see the guitar in the beginning and later on she's compared to it. And, but this whole thing with the ring where in the early scenes, the importance is on this ring that her boyfriend has given her. But in this scene that there, one of the funniest moments in the film for me is when he tries to hide his wedding ring and it just rolls across the dance floor <laughs> And of course, he was one of the most accomplished of the professional actors that uh, Foreman hired. There was a lot. The, for example, the the two parents they were you know cast 
you know, in Foreman's sort of, you know, afternoon strolls through Prague, but that incredibly uh, hopeless, bespectacled middle-aged guy who realizes before anybody else that he's doomed in this in this futile search for female teenage trim. Uh, that's really one of the more nuanced performances in the film, I think. It's hard to sort of take your eyes off him once you figure out what he's doing, like with all of his mannerisms here, which I think is so remarkable because in almost every way, he's meant to be kind of invisible. Right, but there's nothing more awkward than needing to be invisible and being unable to be so. That's horrible. (laughs) Or then hoping to be smooth and... (laughs) utterly failing to the point where you're crawling under someone's table and you have a drink dumped on your head. (laughs) But he, he realizes very early on that he's overmatched, you know, he's, 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 he's putting up the best front that he can, but he seems to know, you know, pretty early in that scene that he and his buddies are going to go home, um, high and dry, if you'll pardon the expression. I thought that he was one of the non-professional actors, because I know for sure Vladimir Menzik uh, is a professional. We've seen him in tons of stuff before, but I thought that the two guys on either side with the glasses were both non-professional. So that's that's something new for me. Uh, I might be wrong then. Or you might be right. I'm not going to claim any sort of uh, authority on that one at all. One of the things I love so much about this is you can tell that the majority of them are non-professional actors. And if someone told me that there wasn't a single professional actor in the film, I would believe it because it feels so effortless. And, you know, I I was reading Foreman mentioned that he sort of wanted it to, to feel like someone's home video, which it does. I mean, these sequences, especially... In this scene here where, you know, they're all at this dance and no one knows what the hell they're supposed to be doing. But even the scene at the end when she's sort of trapped in the Prague apartment with the parents, it feels so true to life that you sometimes forget that there are people giving performances. And there were some people that were non-professional actors in this movie that then went on to be in other things. Of course, a lot of these people would go on to be in The Fireman's Ball, which was the next Foreman film. But even after that, I mean, the guy that plays the father that we'll see later on, he was in, uh, what is it, Echo Homolka and a bunch of other movies. Um, and then, uh, of course, the the main guy who is kind of orchestrating this whole thing, I think his name is Joseph Kolb, he went on to be in a bunch of stuff, including some thing. I'm not sure, Sam, if you're a fan of this one, but The Girl on the Broomstick. So he ends up showing up in a bunch of of films. So it's just great that these non-professional actors then end up getting professional gigs. Well, and I kind of have to wonder if the reason that some of them go on to pursue these careers is because of the positive experience of working on this film with Foreman. I mean, just reading about the way that he set up shots and that he didn't let anyone read the script beforehand and basically just sort of described the scenes to them and read the dialogue from the script to them the day of shooting and really gave them the freedom to improvise. I'm sure that's not a lot of first time extras or sort of first time small role actors experiences on films. It just seems so creative and kind of inspiring. The 
movie really takes off in that uh, final third when we go to Prague and we meet the parents. They kind of steal the show, both in in their refusal to look at each other while they are are talking uh, to Andula, and then later in that just epoch making long take scene in the bed uh you know that was at that point from what i've read more or less completely improvised uh miroslav andrzejczyk the the cinematographer who's working with the aeroflex you know we can talk about famu in a, in a minute but this you know this idea that uh you know filmmakers like Godard could uh, uh, innovated that you could go into like a small claustrophobic apartment with an Aeroflex and a talented cinematographer like Raul Qatar or Andrzejczyk and just create this incredibly expansive and generous physical space for people to get relaxed. I really think that that's uh, one of the main markers of of foreman's art we can certainly see it in in fireman's ball and some of those uh group scenes that that have no professional actors in them uh we have two or three camera people working and that foreman and Andrzejczyk and whoever the editor is have been able to sift and winnow uh these these shots of these sort of uh that are very evocative in these in these group settings and um I, you know, I really think that 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 those sequences near the end really show what Foreman was capable of doing when we get to a movie like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And he has this ensemble of incredibly talented actors sitting in a circle in folding chairs, just riffing on a basic script idea and much of that is really present in this film, I think, in terms of his extraordinary generosity and openness in terms of how he works with an actor and a cinematographer. One of the things to me that's so important in this film about the sort of contrast in situations and the way that sort of tension, maybe for lack of a better word, is sustained throughout the film is that contrast between these really chaotic kind of messy, awkward crowd scenes where everyone feels very anonymous. And then like you mentioned, the sort of intimate scenes where it's usually two, maybe three people to a scene, often they're lying in bed. And I think for a lot of this film, at least to me, because of the way some of these crowd scenes are shot and the way that he wanted to make it feel sort of realistic, I find myself forgetting that there's a particular sense of style. But then with those, exactly like you were saying, with those small spaces, Andrzejczyk's cinematography is incredible. And it's just jarring to be sort of drawn constantly back and forth between these really beautifully shot, intimate, small scenes, and then these sort of more comedic, chaotic group scenes. And I just love that he does that throughout the film. The ultimate pessimistic teleological journey of heterosexual love and romance and sex is from the bedroom to the kitchen table. Those scenes of people in bed and then those scenes 
of people in the claustrophobic marital hell of the kitchen table really work beautifully in in sort of dialogue with each other. I, you know, this movie is made in 1964. The year before, Godard makes A Married Woman, you know, with Kutar shooting all of these sort of sex montage scenes that are focused on these isolated close-ups of body parts and the emphasis on the wedding ring of the married woman who's having the affair. And I just think about... FAMU, the state film school that allowed, you know, in this sort of post-colonization era, they allowed, you know, student filmmakers and screenwriters to see all of these movies from Western Europe that would certainly have been banned in terms of sort of general distribution to the public. But we can see in this movie this extraordinary sort of coming together of elements from the French New Wave and Italian neorealism and stuff uh, combined with, you know, Kat, as you say, this this uniquely Czech sense of displacement and awkwardness and alienization, alienation, pardon me. I like that you said that you're talking about the small spaces and the bedroom, because really, when I think about it, so much of this movie takes place on beds. I mean, even that opening scene after we have the singer doing her song, we have Andula and one of her friends talking about that ring and where they laying, but in bed. And then of course the bed scene that we'll get later on her sleeping on the couch. There's just so much bed going on in here though. I'd have to say, I don't know how much of this movie takes place at this dance hall, but a good chunk of this. It's, it's interesting that even though it feels unconventional, I think we still have a pretty conventional three act narrative going on in here, but it's hidden because of the way that it's filmed in this masterful documentary feel feels very natural that we're moving from place to place to place, not necessarily going from act to act to act. I think if we just look at the, the locations, the move from location to location to location, I think we have a, a fairly classical 90 minute screenplay that could be, uh, you know, if you, if you want to divide it up into the sort of Sid field three acts where we have this long middle act with a midpoint, or if you want to take the Kristen Thompson approach from storytelling in the new Hollywood, where she posits that there are four relatively equally spaced acts. This is a film that adheres to an extraordinary degree to some of these classical norms, which make its departures sort of all the more piquant and fascinating though i'm sure so much of this movie was made in the editing room i've heard that there were just hundreds of hours of film that he shot for this there has to have been because otherwise how could it feel so effortless like this scene i think in the hands of another less competent director would feel sort of bloated and boring. And I think part of what makes the scene great is the way that he gradually dwindles the crowd until you realize that these poor three girls are somehow stuck alone with (laughs) with these middle-aged horn dogs. And I do think a lot of what he does is sort of how you mentioned there's this kind of obvious three-act structure that we don't notice. I think there's a lot of that kind of bait and switch going on where he distracts you with these innovations 
so that you don't sort of notice the basic mechanics of filmmaking. And that's one of the things that I find to be so magical about these early films of his in particular. Well, that's, of course, a result of their studying of neorealism, you know, that, you know, neorealism always had this sense of this, this, this uh, almost random bristling of everyday detail moving from one sort of episodic event to another, when in fact, underneath there were filmmakers who were working with an unusual amount of virtuosity with the norms of classical filmmaking. And, you know, again, we look at FAMU and the fact that they've been watching Hollywood films and Italian neorealist films and French new wave films. And they really came up with something that I think is a totally distinctive set of variations on all of those modes and sort of put it in films like this. Of course, uh, Vera Chitalova was, you know, much more radical in, you know, films like Daisies and stuff, which, you know, we could talk about in relation to this film for hours, I think. But this is, this is a film where we can see the writer and the cinematographer and the director and the editor working within these multiple, within this multiplicity of, of modes. And, and as you say, there's nothing that requires more effort than the appearance of effortlessness. And somehow they, they were able to put that together. One thing I read about this film that I found interesting was pointing out that they make such a big effort to bring in these men, bring in these reservists for these women that work at the factory, but they make no allowances for what happens next. You know, the, we, we know why they're bringing in the men and it's basically let's, help these ladies relieve some tension, some pressure here, but they have no place for these people to go. They're still living in dorms. They're still living amongst their other workers. There's no place for these ladies to go if they end up hooking up with any of these overweight, older, balding men. <laughs> where What's going to happen? Where are they going to go? And the state just like takes them to a certain place and then leaves them high and dry. That's the same thing that happens in Miracle of Morgan's Creek in Hollywood in 1944. This idea that uh, we're really kind of not concerned with the inner lives of women who we have decided to cast in a particular constructive, institutionally imbricated role. This is something that's you know, fairly universal. You see it in a lot of Mexican movies from the forties, you know, that these women working in, uh, in these particular alienated environments and the overarching, you know, power structure has absolutely no sense of them as human beings with needs. Well, and I think what's so elegant about this film is the way that he sort of conflates factory life with the pursuit of marriage is that you're basically exchanging one for the other. And there's absolutely nothing romantic about having sex about any kind of erotic encounter. It's just this sort of expected kind of perfunctory social exchange. And there's this great dialogue earlier in the film where one of the officials makes some comment about how 
this girl keeps leaving the factory because she says she's going to get married, but then she never does. And that idea that these are the only two options in this particular society, I think you could turn that into something incredibly depressing or even something like that Pasolini would have shot. But here he manages to make it not feel so kind of crushing and tragic while at the same time allowing her to have these feelings that seem genuine. Well, that's a great bit where the comrade teacher, you know, gives this incredibly patriarchal pep talk about, you know, marriage and fidelity and all this stuff. And the same person who we saw before the credits singing this would be anarchic sex song to, you know, to the girl with the blue eyes and all this other stuff says, I think we should take a vote. And of course, anytime a group of women get together to decide on their collective agreed upon moves forward in terms of heterosexual sex and relationships, what we have is a policing of sexual norms. And so they decide to take the vote and they said, who agrees that domesticity and abiding affection is better than momentary sexual satisfaction? And we just see all the girls just look at each other and just out of sheer peer-based shame, they all raise their hands. It's a, it's a, it's an extraordinary moment that this that this would be I don't know what bisexual or or gender queer or at least uh, sexually fluid Elvis imitator babe at the at the beginning of the film is saying let's vote on this and so we all agree that it's best to just settle down. The first time I saw it, it definitely struck me as one of those kind of Tipper Gore PMRC moments. Like, I think we can all agree that Darling Nikki is not sexy. It is offensive. <laughs> Just the the looks, the looks on all of their faces are so dour that the first time I saw this, I remember feeling so shocked that it immediately cuts to her by the side of the road with a suitcase. Like, that's just her breaking point. She has had enough. She is brave enough that she might not necessarily be able to stand up and say, this is unacceptable. But she, you know, immediately gets the hell out of Dodge. And I like, too, that there's this conflict within her as she's getting wooed by the piano player as far as the ring and how she's fiddling with the ring while he's talking to her. And then when we get the palm reading scene, that the ring is very prominent in the screen. Because by this point in the movie, I've kind of forgotten about her boyfriend. He's very forgettable. He's very, very forgettable. That picture of him that she has at the beginning, he looks like a total dweeb. And she and she doesn't know what color his eyes are. <laughs> well, and then he he shows up at the dorm on his motorcycle, and he he goes in to sort of claim her, and and he is beset upon all sides by all of those young girls who see completely through him. That's a quietly nice realized moment, I think. It underlines the fact that. It's not about the individual boyfriend. It's about the fact that he represents having a boyfriend. But 
Also, can we talk about the fact that the musician's pickup line is that he's going to read her palm? <laughs> so cheesy. <laughs> I love it so much. <laughs> well, yeah. And of course, we see him when we go to Prague. He's out pounding alcohol and trying to get in the pants of another young woman. One of the things I like so much about his introductory scene is he's such a contrast to the middle-aged men, but you know he has the or you figure out pretty quickly that he has the same aims, but you're still not really sure what to make of him because I think that performance, and I, I don't want to keep repeating this, but that performance just feels so natural and so genuine that, yes, maybe all he does want to do is have sex with as many girls as possible. He does seem to be genuinely interested in her, at least during their time together. We spend a lot of time with them after they've had sex, and he's genuinely engaged. He's not a guy who, once he has had his way, is trying to figure out how to extricate himself from her company as quickly as possible. There's a, there's a genuine connection there that he seems to be sort of, uh, you know, he's kind of riding this wave that, that they're, they're together in this, you know, admittedly, you know, oxytocin fueled state of, of delusion, but he's certainly, he's certainly present and interested in her after, you know, the conquest or whatever has been made, which you know that those sorry-ass soldiers who stepped off of the set of Hall Pass, I mean, like, they would never be able to do that. Those guys would, those guys would finish up with these teenage girls and they would come up with the lamest excuse possible, you know, reveling in the morning or something to get the hell out of there. And we spend a good six or seven minutes with the two of them together in bed talking in a, in a fairly uh, unselfconscious and uh, unguarded way. I mentioned earlier how this was the beginning of a lot of people's careers as far as their acting and this was actually one of the last films that this actor, Vladimir Puchot, was in. I was reading um, All the Bright Young Men and Women that Ben Buckingham turned me on to recently. It's a wonderful book. Oh, it's a fantastic book. And in there, the story is that uh, Carol Rise and John Le Carre helped this guy uh, get residence in the UK, and he retrained as a doctor, and he ended up being a a pediatric physician in um, Toronto, Canada. So he's just a few hours away from me right now. I imagine if he's still alive, and I think that he is. You should have another kid uh, and take uh, her or him uh, next time they get sick. Sure. All right, I'll do that just for you, Kevin. Just for your integrity as a as a film critic. <laughs> I loved you in Loves of a Blonde. <laughs> And then I found it interesting, too, that our main female character, of course, this was her first role, and that she was the what the sister of Foreman's, by that time, ex-wife. Yes. Yeah. Ex-wife was a major actress, and apparently they were still on speaking terms of some sort, or at least he was on speaking terms with his ex-sister-in-law, and ends up putting her in this, and then she would go on to be in a lot of other things. And I think she's fantastic in this. Yeah, she 
has one of those sort of on-screen presences where she feels so perfect for the role because, and I, I don't want this to come across the wrong way, but she's not too beautiful. Like she doesn't feel like somebody plucked this model down into a factory setting and no one else there looks like her. Like she fits in with the other girls, but there's something so kind of quietly charismatic about her that in the scenes where the camera just kind of lingers on her facial expressions, especially later when she's at his parents' apartment, you don't get tired of watching her, I think. And believe me, cross-cutting between that extraordinary scene in the bedroom with the parents and the nearly grown-up son, uh, the bar is set very high for her to maintain our interest. I mean, I think the scenes of sex and eroticism are pretty clearly influenced by Godard and Kutar's work on a married woman the previous year. I have to look at them side by side, but it certainly seems as though this is a response to the increased screen freedom that we can see in Western Europe. Yeah, this cinematography in this particular scene is probably my favorite in the whole film because I think it does something really kind of fascinating where it shows you how vulnerable she is, but also it kind of surprises you. And like we were sort of saying, it goes against this expected trope of how you think he's going to behave. And you see how vulnerable and just how kind of young he is as well with this wonderful scene where he turns the light off, but can't quite have sex with her until he manages to pull the shade down, which just turns into a great moment of physical comedy. This is sort of like the scene where guys in the animal comedy can't get the bra off. For some reason, those scenes where a guy struggles to remove an object of a woman's clothing in a way, and I like a lot of those movies, like I'm a big fan of Animal House, but those scenes tend to feel really demeaning for the woman. But this scene, it sort of puts them on this level playing field. And I think because they're both naked and they're both shot in such a way as to really kind of humanize them, I think makes it a whole different thing than those kind of American teen sex comedies. Oh, I completely agree. We even get that great little sight gag where he's trying to re-roll up the, uh, <laughs> uh, the blind and we think, well, he's going to roll it up like enough for us to see his unit there. And is she even interested if he does? Yes. Um, you know, the, one of the really fascinating things about the, this sort of post Janovist, you know, period in, in Eastern Bloc filmmaking is we can see this tension between the clear mandate, you know, from Moscow to de-Stalinize the arts, you know, that, 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 uh, uh, a particular kind of social satire that exposes the ineptitude of, you know, party bosses and local party figures and stuff. That's that's clearly on the table, and it's even encouraged. And of course, uh, the the non-objectified portrayal of female protagonists, uh, as you 
pointed out earlier, Sam, this idea that we don't just get a fashion model plopped, you know, plopped into a factory setting, you know, that's, that's really here in this film. We could actually look at this film as a fairly almost obedient uh, response to what the Warsaw Pact countries were, you know, trying to do in response to this, this sort of opening up. But you got to hand it to the Czechs. They always figured out a way to, to push it just a two or three steps further than what the folks in Moscow would sign on for. Is it true that the subtitle for this film was once Stop the Piano Player? I really wish that would be the case. <laughs> now I'm going to just start calling it that. And of course, the fact that the sexual encounter is incredibly unsatisfying to her is something that that Foreman gives us enough detail, enough detail to discern. You know, whatever the the emotional sort of after effects of their uh, of their sex together, he goes to some length to show us that she is not physically satisfied, that she's meeting him more than halfway, as it were. See, I don't know that I interpreted it that way at all. I don't think it's a question of her being satisfied or not being satisfied. My interpretation of it, because she cries, was always that this is the moment where she loses her virginity. So there wouldn't even really, I think for a lot of women, wouldn't be a question of that being a time where you would receive physical pleasure in a meaningful way. But I also didn't get the sense that she was dissatisfied because of this scene that follows where they're very physically intimate with each other. And it's not this sort of, okay, well, that was a terrible two minutes and now I'm going to go home. It, they, they have this kind of sweet, playful moment together. And I love that the editing cuts really, really quickly from showing them have sex for maybe about 10 seconds, and then to that much longer kind of intimate, more intimate post sex scene. It's even a jump cut while they're having sex to after him finishing, which is a nice way of just abruptly ending that and kind of pointing out like just how quick it was as well. But yeah, I agree with you as far as her there playing with his hair while he's talking about her being like a guitar. That is a really nice intimate scene. And then when she's there putting on his jacket, that's, you can tell that she seems very happy at that moment. So yeah, I'm not sure as far as the satisfaction or not, but she seems to be pretty happy with him at the moment. That iconic image of, of him lying on her, on her tummy as she's running her fingers through his hair gets replayed in a really beautiful way with the two of them on the couch in Prague while he's trying to put her at ease in the horrific, awkward situation that the entire family has coalesced into. It's almost a, almost a sort of Pieta like scene. And so uh, this, you know, once again, Whoever the American distributor of this film was knew the image that was likely to sell the film. And so belly button and forearm covered breasts, that was the one that was widely circulated. But I find it interesting and really quite beautiful that they replay that later, fully clothed on the couch at the parents' apartment in Prague. 
And if you think about the movie's title and that scene or a still from that scene being used in marketing, it's so misleading because the first time I saw this film because of that, I assumed I was going to see something like, and God created what, like the Czech version of, and God created woman where it's this story about this rebellious young woman's many sexual conquests, and it's anything but that. I wonder if that sort of misleading quality works for or against the film for some people. Well, that was the coin of the realm in distributors and exhibitors' promotion of international cinema from you know the mid-50s to the dawn of the rating system in 1968 so we could pretty much assume that that was going to be the default means of you know hey you won't see this in a hollywood film you know so needless to say you know foreman had bigger fish to fry and he took a much more nuanced and shaded view of uh, this whole idea of sexual liberation which you know let's Frank, the, the whole notion of female sexual liberation was completely imbricated into Western capitalist consumer culture. And so the idea of some kind of sexual emancipation of a woman in a Warsaw Pact country, there was they were speaking different languages. And I think that this film is. Uh, an attempt to address some of those, you know, incommensurate, disjunctive realms of experience. And of course, as soon as she sneaks out and does her walk of shame, we cut right back to the shoe factory as if she's moving from one rigidly defined uh, role to another. And the, the guy who came up with the idea of loosening the soldiers on these teenage girls living in factory dormitories is walking through the assembly line with this smug look on his face saying, well, there's a post-coital glow. I guess my job is done. He is such a sweet grandfatherly figure as well. And it just feels like he is completely clueless as to what really happened the night before. Clueless or he doesn't care. As long as they stay within their particular lane and follow their, you know, two different options for prescribed social roles, I can't imagine that he would care all that much. Yeah, I think as long as these girls stay working, he's going to be happy. And as long as he can feel that the productivity is there and going to go up, then he's going to be fine with that. Because really, at the end of the day, it's the numbers that matter, and he's making his quota. And he'll still be making his quota if they leave the factory and go on to bear, you know, more children for the communist government. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a quota around that as well. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. And I think, you know, earlier we talked about Makaveev, and I think he's somebody who, in a way more radical way, confronts similar subject matter where he looks at the way that communist society pretends to be liberating for women because it removes them from this capitalistic machine, but it's not liberating. It's more constricting. And I think 
to me, these types of characters like that you see in WR, Mysteries of the Organism, and this film, they're sort of the same type of character on different spectrums. Oh, I completely agree. As a matter of fact, didn't a lot of Yugoslav filmmakers train at FAMU? Didn't they I think take, so. that, take that trip across the border? I know that Zabo, uh, uh, Zabo did, and I know that uh, Yancho did. So Machiavelli may have as well, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if he was part of that group. Yeah, I was also reading a little bit about some Hungarian filmmakers that were exploring some similar themes as well. But I have to admit that my Hungarian filmmaking knowledge is just about nil. Well, Yangsho explores it a lot. I mean, he does it in, a, I would say, a way that feels more like Makaveev because it's very sort of radical and experimental in a lot of the films. But I think they all kind of confront this idea of middle-class bureaucracy as being particularly oppressive to women when women are only valued as what can be done with their bodies, whether they're working in a factory or working in a farm or producing children. And Yansho's war films are particularly horrific in that, in that way. Oh, absolutely. Though I have to say, I don't think Milos Forman regularly shot his films shirtless. So Yangshou does have that over him as well. Yes. Come <laughs> to think of it, I've never seen a production still where uh, Yangshou was anything other than only partly clothed. He only filmed in short shorts. Wow. I wish I was making that up. I'm glad you aren't. Because that's information that everyone really needs. No, I, I saw uh, the red and the white when I was in graduate school and those 10 minute takes where Yancho orchestrates these hundreds of extras in these elaborate battle sequences with these, the camera sort of constantly uh, moving forward, you know, in the, in the blazing heat of summer. Uh, I'd be uh, directing in my speedo also. <laughs> this, yeah. this, this dowdy den mother speech about, constancy and domesticity and monogamy is really one of the more savage bits of satire. You could sort of imagine this, this sequence as a sort of test run for nurse ratchets, you know, various speeches to the, the patients in one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Well, and after that speech, one of the things I love so much about how the second dance scene with, you know, all young people is shot is most of it is a long shot. And so you're not getting many of these kind of intimate scenes where you see people's facial expressions. But to me, it's almost like he's showing you look at this vapid mating ritual. Like, it's hard to hear her speech and not carry that with you when you see this scene in the dance hall. Yeah, that long shot of the dance floor is just amazing. And I love, like, once the dance floor is filled up and it's even farther back, and it just that movement of the people wearing white versus the people wearing black, it's just such a captivating scene. I could watch that for a half an hour. It's also kind of claustrophobic, though. I mean, maybe just to me, but there's this idea of sameness, like... All the men are dressed the same. All the women are dressed the same. They have very similar hairstyles. They're dancing the same way. It just, 
I find it kind of crushing, but in a, you know, beautiful way in terms of shot composition. I guess we should have some kind of public forum in which we vote on whether Eastern European or Scandinavian sequences of youth dancing are the lamest in the 60s and 70s. Something I've been thinking about for some time. Those Danish softcore porn films with the youth dancing in the clubs, those are tough to beat. Yeah, it's definitely a far cry from the dance scenes in uh, William Friedkin's Cruising. Different worlds. Yeah, these days it looks like that shot would be, maybe they would get five sets of dancers and then they would just digitally replicate them across because it looks like they are the same five groups of people that are over and over and over again because of that sameness. It's interesting, but those scenes kind of remind me of this Steve McQueen movie called Love with a Proper Stranger, where he and Natalie Wood basically meet at this dance hall, or actually, I think, initially, they meet at some vacation spot that you don't see on screen. But she runs into him at this dance hall after they've had this affair. And it it kind of mimics the narrative of loves of a blonde in a certain way. And she meets him there and wants to tell him that she's pregnant and doesn't know what to do. But maybe because she tries to be this like liberated woman, thinks she should get an abortion. But the dance hall sequence is similar in both films because of that sheer kind of anonymity where it's just this sort of kind of crushing sameness where everyone is there sort of hopeful to perform this mating ritual. I like it. I like the comparison. And also maybe I'm revealing how uncomfortable I am (laughs) with with sort of group dance scenes. Is that why we've never talked about Footloose before? I mean, I do love musicals, but I mean, sort of specifically the more kind of sort of realist high school dance scenes or early 20 something dance scenes that show up (laughs) in movies. I can close my eyes and fully recall the sensation of the high gloss paint on a gym wall against both of my palms as I tried to disappear into said walls at high school and middle school dances in the mid to late 70s. (laughs) Just hearing Chicago's Color My World (laughs) is enough to bring these on. Oh, for me, it's Berlin's Take My Breath Away. (laughs) Okay, well, that's even worse. So I was reading that the scene where Andula is carrying the suitcase is a really important biographical nod, because when Foreman was a child, his mother was taken away by the Gestapo and never returned. And... I'm trying to think of where I read this. I'll have to look it up and send you the link. But they talk about how he had this thing with younger people sort of wandering aimlessly with suitcases because that was something he was forced to do. It's actually in his autobiography, Turnaround. Uh, He talks about that. 
folks want to. So I don't have at. to look it up after all. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, Turn Around a Memoir by Milos Forman came out in 1994, and uh, it's quite a moving passage in his in his memoir. And then I remember that he actually saw a young woman with a suitcase who had come to Prague. So yes. he really got a lot of stuff from real life when it came to that. And then there's that whole story about how she ended up becoming a prostitute and living in Prague. I'm kind of glad that Andula didn't end up in that place. Wait, I think these are two different stories. My understanding is the movie is inspired by him encountering a young woman with a suitcase who said... You know, she came here to meet this man, but he gave her a fake address and Foreman takes pity on her and buys her a train ticket and sends her home. But the second story is, and I don't know how true this is, but the second story is that somebody who worked on Loves of a Blonde was one of the one of the extras winds up having a brief affair with one of the film crew members And that happens to her where she later goes once, I guess, filming has wrapped. She goes to find him. He tells her, you know, no, that was just a fling. And she winds up becoming a prostitute. Oh, I don't see how I could have conflated those stories at all. So many women with suitcases, all very different versions of the same story in a way that I think is weirdly perfect. So the first thing we see when she comes to Prague and dad opens the door is he looks her up and down like he's taking his pick of potential assignations in a brothel. He just looks her up and down. And then mom comes in with this sort of nosy thing, the the parents really steal the show. I'm I'm here looking at my, um, uh, looking at my my playback, and and she comes to the parents' apartment in Prague at exactly one hour. That's you couldn't ask for a more classical plot twist and tonal shift. Than something happening at exactly one hour into a 91 minute film. And as soon as the parents come on screen, the movie just careens into a completely different level of, of astonishing engagement and satire, at least to me. Really enjoy the scene of them together in the bedroom. But this last sequence is just, it, as you said, it steals your attention away from kind of everything that was going on before. And for me, it's, it's just sort of one hilarious moment after another. And I think the fact that the father lets her leave her suitcase there, it just starts it all off. (laughs) And it just becomes increasingly more ridiculous in the best possible way. 
And I feel for this guy so much because he has not asked all of the questions that the mother would have liked him to ask. So he's just like, you know, oh, what about this? What about that? And he's like, I don't know. I didn't ask her. I don't know what's going on. And she just keeps asking question after question after question. And she's going to be that way throughout the entire rest of the film. She is just a incredible whirlwind of force throughout this entire movie. She is just such a fine performance. My favorite scene probably with the mother is when he comes home drunk and sits down on the couch next to Andula and you get the sense that he's calming her down and he's maybe trying to slide in bed next to her and out of nowhere the mother just sort of whisks him away (laughs) into their bedroom. (laughs) And she's such a tiny woman but so much presence. I love the scene at the kitchen table because they're doing everything they possibly can not to look at each other. The TV is this perfect narcotizing distraction for both of them that that if they don't need to maintain eye contact for basic denotative communication, they go right back into the TV. Which I think makes it feel so real and so believable is you have these two people who are just everyone here and everyone listening has had this experience where either you have lived it in your life or you've seen it in your parents or aunts and uncles where it's this sort of couple who has been married so long that they kind of just ignore each other. Not in, not necessarily in a negative way or in a rude way, but it's just. There's no real reason for that sort of level of engagement. It's he's just sitting there. He either just had dinner or probably wants to have dinner. He just wants to be left alone and watch television. The arc of heterosexuality from the bedroom to the kitchen table. My my perspective remains unaltered. Well, and in front of the TV. (laughs) Don't forget to add that in there. I mean, the first time we see her, she is falling asleep watching that movie, which I wish I knew what movie that was, because it looks pretty amazing with those mannequins coming to life. It does look really amazing. And they're to that point in their relationship, which is very uncomfortable for me, where they're calling each other Mama and Papa. I really don't want to ever get to that point. No, and I do think you see that and relationships like this. In many different types of films, I mean, certainly in Hollywood movies, where parents sort of stop having their own identities, and instead of calling each other by their names, or even by romantic pet names, they're just mom and dad. It's, I I agree, it's sort of like the death knell of eroticism. Yeah, it's like the Mike Pence effect. I have to go shower now. Excuse me. I have to go shower in my bathroom that only women are allowed to use because this is a gender-specific bathroom household. (laughs) Mother. Fast forward just another year or so, and we look at it as a sort of diptych with uh, Berchelova's Daisies. You know, Daisies portrays two women who have decided that they reject all of these roles completely. And where do we go from here? We look through this arc of Czech cinema 
for the rest of the decade, you know, you know, even past the Prague Spring into movies like Valerie and her Week of Wonders. And it kind of becomes clear to me that one of the central themes of the Czech New Wave is what about women? What does this socialist framework have to offer women? And what does it ask for them in return? In many ways, this movie is kind of ahead of the um, ahead of the curve there. You know, if you look at a movie like, you know, Party and the Guests and some of the you know other movies from 63, 64, 65, they tend to be kind of male focused and their the folk the thrust of their satire is kind of making fun of men rather than sort of carving out a space for female subjectivity. And I, I think there's something about this film that is really distinctive in that way. One of the things that I think is so fascinating about a lot of Czech new wave cinema, and I think you could include Yugoslavian cinema or, you know, like the Serbian new wave in with this as well, where it's sort of that question you asked of what does this socialist regime have to offer women and what does it ask of them? And I think all of these movies sort of resoundingly answer that it has nothing to offer them and asks everything of them. And I think that's why you get these sort of varying rebellions in everything from Valerie to Daisies and Fruits of Paradise. And I think it becomes different when it's in a film directed by a woman or directed by somebody that we've already talked about, like Makoveyev, who is much more overtly experimental. But here, I, I really, every time I watch the film, I'm struck by her sort of plot twist act of rebellion, which is to leave the factory, presumably without permission, and she certainly doesn't get permission to visit him. She goes from this small town where she's living in a dorm to just getting on a bus and going to a city by herself. And I'm just sort of struck by that act of defiance. And it's not entirely successful, but it's still so bold, especially considering that, you know, he's trying to make something that feels sort of realist or neo-realist. And I think it's just such a, such an important moment, especially kind of, as you mentioned, in a way where it is a bit ahead of that curve. Well, of course she goes to Prague and she finds out that that's a crack of shit also. And she leaves there. Yeah. In other I mean, words, she doesn't burn her bridges. She, she remains, skeptical and resilient and adaptable until the end of the film. I mean, I could definitely imagine a different narrative where she shows up and says like, well, your son had sex with me and, you know, I assumed we would get married and the parents forced them to get married and then it becomes a whole different movie. But to me, that seems like a hugely plausible ending and so the fact that she sneaks out is so much more powerful, I think. I think that it really shows that she has her own self-worth and her own self-preservation at this point, because I think being with this guy would be a huge mistake. You don't like the fact that he stumbles home drunk 
after trying to sleep with yet another teenage girl. And that he's too cheap to buy her flower at the dance? Yeah. The sort of sweet and touching moments that are revealed earlier on, he's made sort of more buffoonish in this final scene. That he's drunk and coming in and seeing her and sleeping on the couch and just, it looks like he thinks that he's dreaming. Yeah, it's like, (laughs) oh, all my dreams have come true. There's a blonde in my bed. And he's living with his parents. I mean, this is hardly a resounding endorsement of the glorious workers paradise is going to bring to the masses. I do like that. We get the return of the tie that we talked about all the way back at the beginning. And that really kind of started off the narrative with her telling the story in bed of the tie that she was tying around the tree in the forest and that she has that same tie and is now trying to give it to this guy. And that again, it shows to me that she's got some power in here that she she's basically regifting something that she was trying to give to somebody else and she she's not a sap you know she's not going to go out and buy another tie she's going to just regift the one tie that she was using for the other guy right and mom finds that when she's snooping and then when he comes back the entire shot of him staggering drunk into the kitchen that skanky peeling door is his disheveled tie whatever the tie means to her uh, it's not a particular accessory that he can deploy with unusual vim and verve that is a really kind of subtle important element and i know earlier i was talking about my obsession with how directors use objects but In films like this, where the narrative is basically about the courtship between a young man and a young woman, women so rarely are gift givers, and they're almost always the ones who receive gifts as this, you know, they have that great line of dialogue in the beginning where her friend says to her, okay, so your boyfriend gave you a ring, and now you have to give him something in return. And I love so much that you kind of, and you know, maybe this is me reading too much into it, but I kind of get the sense that, okay, her boyfriend gives her the ring and the implication is maybe that she is is supposed to have sex with him. But instead she has sex with someone who hasn't given her anything and she shows up and wants to give him something, which I just think is such a sort of subtle way, sort of Mike, as you were saying, to show that she has agency and also that she is able to take kind of sexual or romantic ownership as well. And she's not just a possession. You want to talk about objects. It took me so long to finally figure out that on mama's hand, she's wearing a thimble through the entire speech at the kitchen table. Which is another sort of wonderful, but kind of (laughs) tragic moment. I just kept thinking, what's going on with her finger? Is she wearing a Band-Aid? What is that? And finally, I was like, oh, it's a thimble. She's, I don't know, she's so domesticated that she wears a thimble all the time. Yes, which is why I think it's tragic. It's just sort of that she's disappeared into this role so much that she no longer has an individual identity. I think there could be 
just papers written about patterns in this movie and the stripes that are going on. You know, we were talking about the tie, the stripes of the father's pajamas, the stripes in the uh, first dance hall that we're at, and just uh, the lack of wallpaper in this area versus the wallpaper that was in the opening shot. The shots of all of the power lines when the when the soldiers come in at the beginning on the train and the soldiers come off and they're so stupid they don't know what to do so they start singing old World War II songs about scorched earth and burning everything so the Germans can't get to it you know and you can you can imagine that you know the the, the gals are really you know they're eating that shit up right. Well, I think it's sort of goes back to the film's larger theme about people following specific roles and not knowing what to do with themselves when a situation presents itself and they don't have this clear set of prescribed rules or specific behavior that they're supposed to follow. And I think that's why she's so amazing, because she sort of says, well, no, I'm not going to do this. Yeah, I'm so glad that she takes things into her own hands and that she has those really marked moments of rebellion in here and that she knows the score enough that when she's listening in to the discussion between the son and his father and just like, okay, yeah, I I know what's going on here. She's no dummy. She's not going to stick around until morning. Yeah, and she's not going to wait for somebody to rescue her or it just, I think... In a way, you could see it as being kind of a depressing ending, but I don't feel that way about it. I think because it's so funny with this scene where the two parents and the son are having this kind of like three stooges moment trying to sleep in bed together, it's you you go from this wonderful moment of physical comedy to her kind of, yes, she is returning to the factory, but she's returning as an independent person. These two twin beds that are pushed together, do you think that they're always pushed together, or do you think that they push it together for this special occasion? I have a feeling that they sleep in separate beds. I would agree. Listeners, <laughs> send your direct <laughs> comments to Mike at projectionbooth.com. There is a dash in there, but we won't even begin to talk about that. That's okay. Put it in the show notes, dude. You you seem to think that people actually read the show notes. I do. I do. Well, that's good. Thank you, guys. We're both nerds. Takes a lot for me to find all those links. Yeah, and again, she's got the agency when she's the one that's spying on them rather than being spied upon. I mean, so many times in movies, women are the objects of the gaze, but here it is the parents and the son that are the objects of the gaze, that she's the one peeping in on them. And I'm glad that Foreman didn't cheap out and do like the keyhole shape kind of thing, that we just know from her looking at the the keyhole that what we're seeing is what she's seeing. I also love that he really takes his time with this shot, and he could do this kind of quick... 30 to 45 second scene of them sort of jostling in bed, but he really lingers on it in a way that I just think is so delightful. It's uncomfortable in its length, but in a good way. It really is. <laughs> Those moments that where the shots just go on too long, that's one of the kind of defining stylistic elements of the Czech New Wave to me, that 
if the character and the audience is made uncomfortable with a shot that goes on for six seconds, let's just see how they feel if we stretch it out to 13. And the, the previous one we talked about, uh, a case for Rookie Hangman, goes to extraordinary lengths to do that. That a character will walk into a room and will just look at them and will look at the other people in the room and will look back at them and will look at the other people. And nobody is ready to say anything. This film is, is, is a more shaded or nuanced or understated version of that, certainly. But we can we can see that that sense of social awkwardness. They just they just love that stuff. It serves a larger, almost maybe even a little bit of a Brechtian purpose to make you think about what exactly is going on in that scene and who's in it and how do they make you feel rather than just sort of pushing you on to the next narrative plot point. Like you really are forced to sit there and think about not only how it's uncomfortable, but why it's uncomfortable. Can we talk about how brilliant the end of this movie is, too, when it comes to we are mirroring the beginning of the movie as far as we've got the two girls in bed telling the story. You know, again, it's back to Andula being the narrator and her being the one that is giving us the details and then having the it's a different woman playing guitar, but having, again, a woman on guitar playing that as a ends us with this film just so so smart so wonderful and that beautiful classical theme that is almost a rebuke to the tacky adolescent hormonally charged fake elvis song that we hear at the beginning though every time i think of this movie i think of that stupid hooligan song well and the fact that hooligan became a neologism in uh, czechoslovakia we could do some uh investigating on that i certainly think the end of this, probably more than anything else, makes me think of that really wonderful Peggy Lee song, Is That All There Is? Oh, that's too funny, because I was thinking about this film in terms of Barbara Loden's Wanda. Yes. And when we did an episode on that, that's how I ended the episode was with, Is That All There Is? Because <laughs> that's so that funny. was the the perfect thing. That was the question that we kept asking and that we kept saying, like, oh, that's probably what Wanda is asking. Is that all there is? I mean, I have to assume that that's what Andula is asking as well. Yeah, especially they're still spraying the shoes and ending up in the factory where she is. And though I agree with you that there is hope for this, that she still has her agency, that she's not beat down by the system. And I like that. I, I feel like there's going to be more adventures for her, that it's not just going to end with her in a shoe factory for the rest of her life. Oh, totally. And if this was a turn-of-the-century melodrama, she would have thrown herself into the river or poisoned herself or done something dramatic. But instead, life carries on. Yeah, these days it would be a Bruce Springsteen song. Oh, God, don't say that. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Kevin, what is keeping you busy these days? I am still working on my next book. Oh, for fuck's sake. Would you please just finish that book? A book tentatively titled From Beavis and Butthead to Deplorable Nation, Dumb White Guy Politics in America. But I just – every day I open up the newspaper and there's a new chapter. I don't know what we're going to do. Uh, I'm also working on a book on 
the career and art of Arch Obler, the famous horror movie host of Lights Out in the 30s and 40s, who later went on to do uh, 3D films like The Twonky and Wine a Devil and a number of other uh, really important independent sci-fi and horror films in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And Sam, how is the busiest woman in Philadelphia? Busy, as always. Uh, I'm still waiting for my M book to come out, uh, on, which is a monograph on Fritz Long's film from 1931. Hopefully that will be July, but, but I will certainly share with you when that is live. Um, and other than that, uh, lately I have been writing some essays for Eureka. I did, uh, this really great uh, early Martin Sheen film called The Incident, which is all about this kind of terrifying night on the subway in New York. I did uh, a liner essay for their release of Long's Woman in the Window. Cat uh, and I are contributing a commentary track to this film called Morocco for Indicator's upcoming Dietrich and Von Sternberg set. Uh what else? I also recently contributed a commentary track to this great Jean-Paul Belmondo film called La Marginale, which Kino is putting out soon. You know, all the things, not so much sleeping. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. Because people do read the show notes, apparently. Thank you guys for doing that. you also find a link over to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Just
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.